People who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer or questioning, as well as other gender identities and sexual orientations, are more likely to experience worse health outcomes than the general population, find it harder to access services, and they have poorer experiences of using services when they do access them. In today's episode, we'll be exploring the health inequalities that LGBTQ plus people face, as well as asking what needs to happen to make sure health services are inclusive for these groups. You know at some point you're going to have to go, by the way, I'm gay, and you're kind of waiting for it to happen. <laughs> she asked me whether I'm a man, and I said, no, I'm non-binary. And then she asked me whether I'm a woman, I said, no, I'm non-binary. And this conversation went on for a while. It really made me feel really unseen, just really sort of invisible and not really understood. I'm Helen McKenna, Senior Fellow at the King's Fund. I'm joined on today's episode by two brilliant guests, Dr Michael Brady, National Advisor for LGBT Health at NHS England and NHS Improvement, and Michelle Ross, Co-Founder and Director of Holistic and Wellbeing Services at Clinicu, a holistic wellbeing and sexual health service for trans, non-binary and gender diverse people. Before we get started, just a note about terminology and language. In this episode, we'll be exploring some of the issues affecting people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer or questioning, as well as those who identify as non-binary and gender diverse. So we'll be using the acronym LGBTQ plus to signal this throughout. It's also important to recognise that the LGBTQ plus umbrella encompasses a diverse range of experiences. There are differences in access, experience and outcomes for people of different gender identities and sexual orientations. And we'll be exploring this where we can in the episode. And as always, do subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others to find us and helps us to improve the show. So, Michael, Michelle, before we get into our discussion, it would be great if you could each just briefly explain your roles. Hi, um, Helen. I'm Michael Brady. Um, I have a few hats. Uh, I'm the National Advisor for LGBT Health at NHS England and NHS Improvement. Uh, and I'm also a sexual health and HIV consultant uh, at King's College Hospital in South South London. Broadly, my remit is to address, highlight and improve the inequalities experienced across health healthcare for, for LGBT plus uh, individuals. So focusing on improving access, improving experience and improving outcome. I'm Michelle Ross. I'm a psychotherapist. I'm a founder of Clinicure, which is a holistic sexual health and well-being service. And we're in partnership, a very wonderful partnership with King's College Hospital, where we deliver a service together on a Tuesday. And we also, at Clinicure, we have 14 therapists who um, deliver sessions throughout the week with um, for therapy and well-being. And we've been delivering services for coming up for 10 years, which seems to have gone so quick. Brilliant. Thank you. And it's great to have you both with us. So research has shown that LGBTQ plus people experience quite striking health inequalities. Michael, can you tell us a bit about the types of health inequalities that LGBTQ plus people face? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the, the point to make is that we see inequalities wherever we look for it. I, I don't know of any data that shows that LGBT plus people fare better than their heterosexual or cisgendered peers. I think one of the challenges uh, is that we don't actually uh, ask the questions often enough. So we've actually got huge gaps in our data because we don't routinely ask about sexual orientation and gender identity and trans status in every setting. We do ask about sexual orientation in all of our national NHS uh, patient experience surveys. We're starting to get better data in mental health services. But to summarise, I think where where we where we do ask the questions and we see inequalities, I think one of the main ones is in mental health. Patient experience uh, is worse across the board uh, in, in every setting. Substance misuse, alcohol misuse, smoking is much higher in LGBT plus people. We have some data to show that some chronic diseases are more common. Screening is less likely to happen. Cervical screening is a really good example. Lesbian uh, and bisexual women are much less likely to go uh, for smears compared to their heterosexual uh, peers. And uh, accessing smears is particularly problematic for trans men and non-binary people assigned female at birth with major barriers to, to accessing and much lower rates of, of cervical smears. So that's probably a snapshot. Um, as I say, wherever you look, you find the inequalities, but we do need to get better at, at, at data collection across the board. Thanks, Michael. And um, really interesting, the point around um, the data, because you're saying, you know, where we have the data, it shows significant inequalities. But obviously, I think you're suggesting there's a point there around the date, the limitations of the data as well. Absolutely. And I purposely always say where we have the data, because one of the things certainly that I'm working on uh, uh, NHS England and with colleagues across the country is to improve the collection of data, our data monitoring, uh, which is really about getting to a stage where systematically and robustly across the system we collect information on sexual orientation, gender identity and, and trans status. Because until we have data in every setting, we won't fully understand the breadth and the depth of the inequalities. We won't have anything to benchmark um, against when we're making improvements. Uh, and uh, collecting data or asking those questions is a way for services to demonstrate that they're inclusive of LGBT plus people and that, that they are welcome and recognised and their needs uh, will be met in services. Um, so, so we, I mean, there's, a, there, there's many reasons to get better at collecting data. I mean, not least that I think we have a, a legal and a statutory duty. You know, we have a duty under the Equalities Act to address or prevent discrimination for those protected characteristics, the nine protected characteristics in the Equality Act. So in this sense, we're talking about sexual orientation and what's called gender reassignment in the Act, but essentially is is trans people. And I think uh, as public health services, we are not discharging our duties under the Equalities Act unless we're collecting uh, this data because we don't know the proportion of LGBT people in our services and we don't know what their experience is. So I would encourage all services to be if they're not already, collect this information on sexual orientation and gender identities. Thanks, Michael. And of course, we need to be clear that there are different identities within the LGBTQ plus population and that access experiences and outcomes will sometimes differ quite significantly between them. So, Michelle, coming to you, thinking about the groups that you work with most closely, and that's trans and non-binary populations, are there specific challenges that these groups face? Oh, yes. Um, and, I, and in a way, it kind of follows on from what Michael was saying around that data and the collection of those questions and, and and uh, around a broad range of identities. And I think there's something I often say, either wherever it is, if we're not counted, we don't count. And uh, data is not just about numbers, clearly. It actually really looks at the details 
that people have faced, the different lifestyles that people have as well. Um, and when I'm saying that, I'm talking about LGBT people, but trans people specifically. You know, there are some trans people that are privileged and can access mental health services that they choose, which might be privately led. However, you know, there is no data on mental health services, mental health issues for trans people. But we do, well, in, in, in let's just say in, in most NHS services, we have, we have got the data where um, about 84% of trans people have thought about ending their life. Just under half of trans people have committed some kind of act of self-harm or attempt of suicide. Now, if you think about almost half of the population of any population, that is huge. Trans people are seen as a, uh, a vulnerable um, population and a small population, really. But if you think if that was half of the whole country that has um, attempted suicide, there would surely be an outcry. And there's not an outcry on these issues. Historically, uh, and presently, trans people have to be diagnosed with a mental health condition, really. Uh, gender dysphoria that really doesn't help um people have a sense of self it should be really in primary care so that you know the, the services are much more easier accessible because still we we see uh, mental health as a stigma now trans people in and of their self don't have mental health issues because they're trans but it's the system the way that's systemic and the, the culture around being trans and the harm that that can do they're not able to access services that are inclusive, aware, and delivered in an appropriate way. It really is a vulnerable population in many ways because of lack of access to those informed services. It really needs to change. I think it's getting to a crisis point, especially the way that things are happening at the moment with the huge attacks on trans and non-binary people, which is we see it in our mental health services at Clinic Europe. We see the impact. You know, getting 90 referrals in a month is quite overwhelming for, our, for us, and I think it would be for any. And it's all about the mental health and, um, and not able to access services and trust if they do go to those services that they're going to get met in a way that respects their identity. And Michelle, I'm really struck by what you said around, you know, if you're not counted, you don't count. And, you know, just how dispiriting that is and also uh, highlights how important services like yours are um, that are kind of focusing on specific communities and their needs. I think just thinking about um, taking an intersectional approach, obviously sexuality and gender identity are only a part of our identity. So how do other characteristics such as race, ethnicity and disability play into this? You know, we are none of us you know, walking around with just one characteristic or one experience. We're all a richly diverse mix of our ethnicities and sex and sexuality and sexual orientation, sorry, and gender identity and our religion or whether or not we have a disability and where we were born and where we live and what jobs we do and our disposable income. And all of those create complex pictures, which means that as much as possible, and it's get this is difficult sometimes when you're thinking of it from a, you know, a large scale national point of view or even from a service point of view but it's about really trying to always give thought to that individuality and not using too broad brush an approach around health inequalities. I'd like to move on to the LGBT action plan now so thinking about what's being done to tackle 
uh, these issues. The cross-government LGBT action plan was launched back in 2018 and it had over 75 commitments aimed at setting out how to improve the lives of LGBT people and 12 of those were focused specifically on health. Before we get on to what progress has been made against the commitments, can I just take you both back to the launch of the report? Was this an important moment from your perspective? I mean, I think I think the LGBT Action Plan and the National LGBT Survey that preceded it and informed it were incredibly important points in time. Um, the survey was the biggest survey of its, well, it remains the biggest survey of its kind in the world with over 108,000 responses from LGBT people talking about their experiences of living in the, the UK. And as you said, Helen, um, with some specific questions around health, which led to the form the forming of the the action plan, I think it's important for a number of reasons. It, firstly, just if nothing else, because it, it was a very visible statement of intent from the government. It was a real, a really tangible commitment to ask the questions of the community, to listen to what they were being told, and to do something about it by developing an action plan with specific uh, commitments. And Michelle, thinking back to those three three years ago, was it an exciting kind of optimistic moment for you? <clears throat> I'd like to say it was. I agree. It was a really important for LGBT plus people. Absolutely. And was needed. Needed to be actioned. And when I say actioned, what I would like to see is goals set, timelines set, not just um, an action plan. And then when do we know when things are going to be set in place? Where are the actions? What, how do you then break that down and say, well, this is what we're going to do then and this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to put in place. This is what's needed. What is needed out of those most of all? What is the priority? Is there a priority? I'm someone that's seen many action plans in my lifetime. You know, I think as a trans person myself, and I know I speak from now from the community, but I also speak as a psychotherapist as well, that um, I get a little bit tired and a bit wary of seeing action plan. Now, that's not taken away from the um, action plan we're talking about, but I'm just saying it feeds into when is this going to happen? When is it going to make a change to people's daily lives? Are they still going to be thinking about ending their life? Are they still going to be self-harming? Are they still going to be going to a mental health service that doesn't recognise them or is really difficult to go to and being stigmatised within that? There is a crisis in the trans community at the moment. And as I said, the amount of referrals we've received just demonstrate a small part of that crisis, really. Then trans people, as far as I'm aware, as a person from the communities, are not looking for anything special, just equal rights to access to services that are informed across the country. And and rights to the kind of very existence in some of the cases that you're talking about, Michelle. In terms of the action plan, are you seeing any different, you know, it's, it's been three years, that's a relatively short time, but are you seeing a difference in terms of on the ground with the people that you're working with as a result of that action plan? I think they're going worse, really in the context of those attacks and those things. I have seen changes in access to services in, in gender care. So I've seen those making it easier for some areas of the country, for trans and non-binary people, to access some of those services. So if that's part of it, then yes, I've seen some changes. But for me, that's scratching the surface because there's many people that don't need those services. 
and yet those people still have needs, still have mental health needs, still have support needs, still have many other needs for their daily living. You know, so have I seen changes? Yes, but um, I haven't seen enough. And it sounds like there's a, to me, there's a health kind of emergency within the trans community. You know, I would say so. I would really say so. And if I don't express that, express that enough, enough, I'm not doing something right. I'm not doing my job right. So, um, Michael, over to you in terms of, you know, it's been three years. Obviously, we've had COVID as a pandemic um, during that period. But how have things changed from your perspective? How's, how much have you been able to implement of that action plan so far? We have um, achieved some successes if we're thinking about some of the specific commitments within the action plan. I think the other thing to remember about the action plan is that like a lot of the uh, the things that we need to do, they're, they're often, and this is sometimes part of the challenge, there isn't often one single organisation that's, that's, that's needed to deliver it. So we do need a coordinated approach across the system that involves NHS England, it involves the community, it involves uh, individual service providers and, you know, the Department of Health and sometimes some of the Royal Colleges. So sometimes part of the challenge is pulling everybody together and, and getting that action. But certainly there are, th- there are commitments within the action plan that we have in- achieved. Um, so my, my, my other area of work is as a sexual health and HIV consultant. So there was a commitment around uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis and we now have uh, PrEP, um, the incredibly effective HIV prevention strategy uh, available on the NHS. Uh, we've still got more to do to uh, make sure that everybody who needs it, who is at risk of HIV, um, has access to it. But um, having PrEP commissioned uh, was one of the commitments, and that's a success. We've seen just recently uh, changes to the blood donation rules, so blanket deferrals for men who have sex with men, that's gone. Uh, and now uh, everyone who donates blood will have an individualised risk assessment, irrespective of their gender or their sexual orientation. So uh, that's been improved. There's been some work around around a surrogacy. The first commitment was appointing the national advisor. And so I'm pleased to say that I'm here and, and still here. So that commitment has been achieved. But I think some of the other areas I would describe as works in progress, and they're all areas that, that we've touched on already and that and Michelle has gone on in, in, into detail. So things around uh, mental health, things around access to gender identity uh, services, um, commitments specifically around LGBT plus people with learning difficulties, um, autism, uh, issues around body image. So there are some broader issues um, that we still need to, to work on. I don't think that means that the, the action plan is of no use. I think it, it remains a useful doc- document. You know, and as I said, it's very evidenced by the responses from the, 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 the survey. It remains a kind of focus, I think, in terms of highlighting areas. I certainly definitely think that there are there is scope to add more or to, to, to also focus in other areas. Um, you know, as we've said, Health inequalities exist across the board, but um, we can still keep working on those areas described in the action plan. Thanks. And in terms of where the action plan is at now, Michael, because a few weeks ago, I think I spotted some comments from Equalities Minister Liz Truss, who was seen to be suggesting that the status of the action plan might be under question in terms of current government policy. Have you had any clarity on that, Michael? Um no is the honest answer to that i mean uh, i i am involved in discussions with with government and um you know the department of health and also discussions within nhs england about new areas of focus and where we should be uh where we should be heading in the future i certainly um you'll probably have heard of and be be aware that the government is running a uh, an international lgbt plus 
conference uh, next year. I think that's a real opportunity for us to focus on health priorities as, as well as the, uh, you know, within that uh, key theme of that conference of safe to be me. So yeah, there's, there's, there's work ongoing still about, you know, as I said, keeping going with the areas uh, that, that were described in the action plan and also sort of adding more or, or expanding them. And I think it also goes back to the point I was making before is that, is that you know, there, there are multiple organisations that are responsible for delivering this work. I mean, clearly, you know, the government sets policy and sets the environment and the culture within which we work. And so um, that's very important. And uh, keeping a commitment to address these uh, issues uh, high on the agenda is as important as, as ever. But, um, uh, you know, there's, there's certainly work um, both at a national level with NHS England and the Department of Health. And frequently, I think also we mustn't forget, at local levels, I mean, whilst, you know, those of us that work for national bodies have, a, have an important part to play, a lot of the changes, a lot of the really good work that's being driven to address health inequalities is happening in individual trusts, by organisations uh, from the community like uh, Clinic Q at a more sort of local or regional level as well. And we mustn't forget the importance of their contribution. So we've talked about what the NHS is doing to try and address the health inequalities faced by LGBTQ plus communities. And now I want to explore a bit about the experiences of individuals when using health and care services. To help us get a sense of this, we spoke to some members of the LGBTQ plus community to find out what their experiences have been like. You know at some point you're going to have to go, by the way, I'm gay, and you're kind of waiting for it to happen. <laughs> I had to go in for a small procedure that meant that I had to get anaesthetic. I was just in and out. I didn't have to stay overnight or anything, but I did need to bring somebody with me to take me back from hospital. The nurse was sort of taking me back to the waiting room to my waiting partner, and he said something like, there is someone waiting for you, isn't there? I said, oh, yes, yes, my partner's there. And he said, oh, that's really good of him to come in. And I said, oh, actually, it's a she. And he said, oh, how does that work? (laughs) And I could see on his face that he sort of saw the penny drop and realised that he'd said something he didn't really mean to say. And he sort of, you know, apologised and went, oh, you know, have a nice rest of day and sort of threw me (laughs) at my partner and ran away. In my experience, for my, my particular situation, the care that I've received over the years has been consistent and attentive. I've been HIV positive for, for 25 years, so, I mean, the fact that I'm a, a gay man was pretty uh, central to that experience, and so right from the off, I mean, it was never it was never an issue, it never has been an issue. I was never made to feel that my sexuality was was anything, as far as I can perceive, it's never had any bearing on the kind of healthcare that I've received. It's almost invisible. I did have one specific uh, negative experience. Essentially, I requested a referral to the gender identity clinic. So I met with her. And she asked me whether I'm a man, and I said, no, I'm non-binary. And then she asked me whether I'm a woman. I said, no, I'm non-binary. And this conversation went on for a while. 
where she wanted me to pick between whether I'm a man or a woman, and I kept insisting that I'm non-binary. As a result, uh, she said, oh, I think your blood pressure might be quite high. <laughs> yes, because I'm quite upset by this point. I've come to speak to this person who is supposed to be a specialist, and they just act like a barrier. The one that kind of left me quite angry, I suppose, it sort of stuck with me. I was in the hospital, um, I ended up in A&E with um, what turned out to be a blood clot in my leg. By the end of the day, I had to go and see the nurse specialist to be given the prescription for the blood thinners that they so after you've had a, a blood clot they they give you blood thinners for up to six months just to make sure everything's sort of flowing properly again and at the end of the all she said okay I'm going to give you the prescription today but you're not to start taking them until I phone you tomorrow morning because we're going to use the blood that you've already given us um to do a pregnancy test and I started to say oh no that's okay there'll be no reason for this for you to do this but I didn't get to get through my sentence before she said nope it has to be done we do it for everybody you know there's no arguing all I wanted to say was I'm I'm gay it's very unlikely and I realize that there are probably protocols that they have to go through and I realize that there probably are exceptions and there are reasons why they have to do that but really all I wanted was to be able to put my situation forward and for her to say, yep, I've heard you. I just felt like all my sort of... She didn't know who I was or understand anything about me and just by not taking that moment to let me finish that sentence, it just it really, it, it really made me feel really unseen, just really sort of invisible and not really understood. <laughs> So I can see the importance of especially the people who have the power to be the gatekeepers to be properly educated and to support the patients. It's such a small change that could mean such a big difference. So we heard a range of experiences there, including some positive ones, but also what comes across so clearly is that there is a lot more that needs to be done to ensure that the NHS is genuinely inclusive for everyone. Various findings, including data from the LGBT Foundation and the government's own 2017 LGBT survey, suggest that work needs to be done with healthcare professionals to improve their awareness of LGBTQ plus issues so they can provide better patient care. And there are also issues for staff themselves. For example, the 2020 NHS staff survey showed that lesbian, gay and bisexual staff report worse experiences than their heterosexual colleagues, with nearly 14% reporting discrimination from patients or the public and nearly 12% from their own colleagues. So, Michael, Michelle, from your perspectives, what are the key things that need to happen next to make real and meaningful progress in tackling health inequalities for LGBTQ plus people and to ensure that health services are inclusive? Oh, that's a big question, because I think the NHS is overall wonderful, really. And I mean, I, I genuinely mean that. I think our health would be far worse without something like the NHS or the actually the NHS. Yeah, I think there is work being done. I know um, from the work that I'm involved with within the NHS, you know, I see various departments. I see lots of 
activism within the NHS on changes, making sure, you know, you only have to look at all the badges that have come out within the NHS on it, the, the rainbow badges, meaning uh, LGBTQI, and also there's now a trans badge. Uh, so that there is work, but that needs to be right throughout, and because I think it's mostly within certain trusts that do that. And it's not just about giving out a badge. It's not just about this or a label or something. It's about how do you help the star, the front of house people, the, the people that deliver the services, the uh, clinicians, how do you help them be reminded that it's not just a binary system, that there's LGBTQ people who also identify in a range of identities. That needs to change. And we spoke about the data and forms that people fill in. And I think that on a daily basis, using those reaffirms that this there is more. That's not just male and female, or it's not just there are people who of sexualities that are different to them. I'd love to hear Michael's point of view on this. I was going to ask you, Michael, you know, you're obviously somebody who's trying to drive change in this area and so many others across the NHS. What's your view in terms of do you think the NHS currently sees the issue of providing inclusive, sensitive and appropriate care as enough of a priority, bearing in mind there are kind of pockets of excellent practice and then and then potentially areas where, that need further development? I think we can certainly prioritise it more and, and we, we certainly definitely need to do more. Um, but, but also, um, as, as both you and, and Michelle have just acknowledged, there are, there are plenty of examples of really great pra- practice around the country. So, and I think it's really important in these discussions. It, it, we do need to start with, you know, the what's going wrong, but also recognise where it's going right. The, the whole concept of, of being inclusive, for me, is fundamental because I think it, it encapsulates everything else that we we've been talking about you know an inclusive service will have really good training for its workforce so they understand health inequalities and know how to to address them and to support lgbt plus people an inclusive service will collect data on sexual orientation and gender identity so we'll have addressed that that data that data issue but also i think when we're thinking about inclusive services the, there are things that individuals can do i mean sometimes when you look at the system it all feels too huge and too overwhelming but actually every single one of us working in the NHS can make a change tomorrow so that our service is more inclusive and our services are more inclusive you know Michelle's mentioned some of them signs and signals are really important rainbow badges rainbow lanyards posters for LGBT organizations in your in your waiting room ensuring that the images on your websites uh, are inclusive with same-sex couples with trans and non-binary people ensuring that your language is non binary uh, and is inclusive of of everyone the language on your websites and your patient information in your health health promotion these are all f- simple changes that we can all make tomorrow and they're all signs and signals that mean a huge amount to lgbt plus people simple things like um, asking about pronouns or using your pronouns in your email signature or having your pronouns uh, on your badge People see that. People from the community see that and it gives them confidence and trust that you are going to be somebody that is going to support them and your service is going to be inclusive. You know, I know because I they tell me all the time, uh, uh, people tell me all the time, but L- LGBT plus people, particularly trans and non-binary and gender diverse people, they look for these things. You know, they will avoid services that don't display these and will be drawn to services and have been shown to have a better experience in the services that, that do this. So that 
stepping back and thinking, is my practice inclusive? You know, am I an ally? You know, am I teaching myself about the needs? Am I calling out bad behavior? Am I um, meeting the needs of, of my LGBT plus patients? That's something that all of us can do uh, tomorrow, as well as service leaders, uh, service providers, the system thinking about that more generally. Turning specifically to the community Michelle works with, which is trans and non-binary people, a group who, as we heard, often feel very marginalised. There's a good deal of discussion at the moment, um, Michelle, not least in health circles, about transgender rights. We've we've talked about that earlier. Do you have a message for health services and staff listening to this about how they can support the transgender community and improve their experience of health services? Oh, well, several messages, but I just say invest in trans people. And I don't mean just give clinic loads of money so we can do lots of work. What I do mean is invest in trans people, making jobs accessible for trans there's a huge unemployment making those jobs available making sure that when you put out an application for a job that you are very aware of including trans and environment making sure that your websites are uh, very inclusive of trans and non-binary people i think access to jobs is not the only thing but access to fair treatment and when I think about that, I don't just think about gender care. That's one of the main issues, yeah. But I think all oh, access to all health and not be scared, not having to feel that you have to explain what kind of trans person you are, sitting there with a health provider saying, well, what kind of trans person are you? What are you? What have you done? What have you had said? Those questions just drive people away when they're unnecessary. Thank you, Michelle. And a really strong message there to services and all our listeners. And Michael, final, final thought from you. I think on that, what I what I would say is talk to trans and non-binary people, engage with the communities and ask them what they want and what they need. We don't do that nearly enough. We assume that we have the answers when we don't have the answers. Michelle's very eloquently, as, all, as always, uh, run through uh, many great tips for services, but that would be my single biggest thing. And do it meaningfully. Surveys are great, but you, nothing beats sitting down and talking to the individuals who's, who we are meant to be providing services to and to the community organisations that represent them. So meaningfully engage. That's how we make better services. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much to Michelle Ross and Dr. Michael Brady for joining me, and also to the individuals from the LGBTQ community who kindly shared their experiences of using healthcare services with us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. You can also get in touch with us via Twitter at the Kingsfund account. And thank you to our podcast team for this episode. Charlotte Wickens, Sharon Jones, Lindsay Hawker, Deborah Fenny, and Sarah Murphy. And thanks to you as always for listening. We very much hope you can join us next time. Mm-hmm.